lot of great lessons there for us to learn. Also, ask that you would keep Pastor Ken and his family in your prayers. Kenny's mom went home to be with the Lord this week, and so you can always think you're prepared. And his mom's just a neat Christian lady, but you're never totally ready for something like that. So just hold them up. Uh, services will be this week, and just keep them in your prayers as well. Let's turn now to Galatians chapter 3 in our Bibles. We've been studying on Sunday mornings through Galatians for quite a few weeks now, and we're here in chapter 3. Chapter 3, Paul kind of shines the light back historically to get a perspective on this issue of the law. The book of Galatians addresses a problem, and the problem that was happening there in those churches in Galatia was that people had heard the gospel, the good news that all they had to do is accept Jesus Christ by faith and their sins would be forgiven and that's all it takes. And yet there were people who were coming along and telling them, well, that's not quite all it takes. You also need to go back and obey the law. You also need to follow the rules. And so Christianity for the Galatians was becoming not something that we gloriously and graciously and gratefully accept as Jesus Christ dying for us and that changing everything, but instead it was taking on the additional burden of saying, now you also need to fulfill the law. As we've talked about before, it's a natural tendency that we have to want to do something that's what religion basically is, is man trying to do something to get a hold of God, to work our way to God. In reality, the good news of the gospel is it's something that God did. He sent his son to die for us. He paid the price for our sin, and now we can come boldly to him, not on the basis of who we are or what we've done, but on the basis of who he is. But they were in a quandary about this, and you can understand it in a way because Hey, they had lived as a, you know, the Jewish people had been under the law. That was something that they, it was very important to them. It was a, a, a document and a set of rules that for hundreds of years had set the stage and painted the picture for what God was asking of man. And so old ways die hard and they certainly were inadvertently making null that which Jesus did on the cross by trying to help him out. And so often we do that too. We, we change Christianity into something that we can do instead of what he has done. So here, as we saw last time, well, last week was Easter, so it was week before last, we were in the earlier part of chapter 3 and talking about how Paul said, the same way you get saved, that's the same way you're supposed to live. And he gave Abraham as an example, and he said, Abraham, before the law, believed God when God made these radical promises to him that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed, that he would give him a seed more than the sands of the seashore, and ultimately that Messiah would come through his lineage and as a result conquered sin and death. So Abram had those promises, and when he believed, it says, it was counted to him as righteousness. And so Paul said, it hasn't changed. And he talked about this, this quote, the just shall live by faith. The fact that he said, how did you become a Christian? Did you do something to become a Christian? Or did you receive the Holy Spirit by Him doing something? And He said, the same faith that allows you to accept a relationship with Jesus Christ, that's the same faith you're supposed to live by on a daily basis. Well, now as we come to verse 15 and following, Paul gives them a bit of a historical perspective lesson and talks about these two concepts, the promise or the inheritance that gift that God promised to give. And on the other side, the law, the expectations, the regulations, the rules, the, the procedures that were given to the children of Israel. And as he explains what they're there for and how they are there, he strengthens his argument to say that, no, it is not by you making yourself a good person. It's by simply in faith receiving what God has done for you. Beginning in verse 15, he says, and we'll look through the passage and then make some observations on it. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. 
In other words, he says, when it comes to human deals, when you make a promise, when you sign a covenant, your last will and testament, or you enter into a contract, you can't change what you promised. Even people understand this for the most part, although now, now more people aren't people of their word, and they try to go back on what they promised, but basically he's saying, listen, even with people, you can't just say, oh, I didn't mean that, or oh, I want to change some of the terms of that. You make a commitment, you're supposed to live up to it. But he says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So he says, a deal is a deal. You agree to something and make a covenant, which God had done with Abraham. He said, you need to look carefully at what God did promise to Abraham. This is something that was unconditional, a commitment that God made. And you remember back after Abram had had rescued the kings of Sodom, and they offered him a lot of riches. And he said, you know what, I don't want your stuff. He said, if, I want to, if God wants me rich, he can make me rich, but I don't want anything from you. And they said, okay. And they left, and then he said to God, uh, what do you got for me? <laughs> do you want to make me rich? And God said, Abraham, don't fear. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Abraham, you get me. And Abraham goes, well, great, but what does that mean? And God reiterated the promise that he had made back in Genesis chapter 9. He said, I'm going to multiply you, and I'm going to bless you, and I promise you that all the world is going to be blessed through you and through your heritage. And after doing that, God had Abraham prepare, or Abram, prepare the legal procedure for making a deal, a contract. And the way they would do it at that point, and it's, I don't know, if we did this nowadays, maybe there would be less contracts and that would probably be a good thing. But they would sacrifice animals and then cut them in pieces and divide them and make a path through the sacrificed animals. And the two people who were making the deal would walk through the, the path between the dismembered animals and, and that was their commitment. So Abram laid it all out and he's ready to make a deal with God, but Abram fell asleep. And as he was in a deep sleep, God showed up and walked through all by himself. The point was really clear. Abram, you're not promising anything. This is a unilateral contract. This is something that I am promising without conditions for all of eternity. I'm going to do what I said I am going to do. And then later, God continued to confirm it to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, Always saying, hey, I made a promise to Abram that I have a great gift that I am going to give. Now, in Genesis chapter 22, as he describes this gift, and we see it also over in Exodus where he uses the term seed. And again, here, as we look at verse 16, it's making a point. It's seed singular, not seed plural. And the point was, when God was saying, your seed. He was talking about none other than Jesus Christ himself. It was a messianic promise. And so God had made this promise, and he can't go back on it. He's bound to it. And he wasn't just talking about there's going to be a bunch of Jews. That was a miracle enough. But he was saying there's going to be one in particular that all of the promise is going to be focused on him. And he said, and this I say, verse 17, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. 430 years after the promise was made. Now, there are people who make an issue of this and they say, well, the law came along over 600 years after the Abrahamic covenant was given to Abraham. But if you follow the chronology, the same promise was given to Isaac and finally to Jacob. And from the time that Jacob received that covenant, that, that reinforcement of the covenant that had been made with his grandfather by God, then, 430 years later, the children of Israel, after being in Egypt all of that time, 
left Egypt, finally headed out and went to Mount Sinai and received the law. And so what Paul is saying here historically is, basically, God made a promise, and that promise predates the law by at least 430 years, really by over 600 years. And so you can't have something come along afterwards that nullifies the promise of God. See, God said unconditionally, here's what I will do. And then you can't have the law come along and go, however, here's what you need to do. And that was their misunderstanding. It was almost as if though God had promised to bless people. And God wanted to pour His blessings out and send His Messiah. He pauses for hundreds of years and then says, Oh, I forgot to mention something else. You need to keep all of these rules in order for this to happen. Paul is saying, that wouldn't make sense. There was a promise that happened before the law, and you need to look before the law in order to even understand the significance of the law. And so the question comes up as as Paul asks here. Well, you know, in verse 18 it says, the inheritance, if the inheritance is of the law, it's not a promise. An inheritance is something that is given to you. It's not something that you earn. It's not something that you take. It's not something that you abscond with. Now, a lot of people, and by the way, this word that he uses here, you know, for covenant is a word that often means a last will and testament. And I don't know if he had that in mind here, but it applies especially when you think of what people do sometimes when someone dies. They die and, well, they may have a very detailed will or a living trust that shows exactly who gets what. And it's really nice if you do that for your family. On the other hand, if you really want to mess with your family, don't leave any instructions. Just die. It's the final revenge. Let them fight over your stuff. Survival of the fittest. But, you know, if that's what happens, and it does to a lot of people, and will or no will, there are a lot of times when someone dies and everyone's pouring through their stuff. You know, but if that's what happens and you're running out of the house with an old TV set, you know, your grandma's old 19-inch TV set, and you're like, what do I got? You can't say you inherited it. You can't say, yep, that's what I inherited from my grandmother. When she died, I went in the house and I grabbed it. No, any more than you could say, I just broke into someone's house and stole their stuff, but I consider it an inheritance. God, I thank you for this stuff that you are giving me. He's going, no, there's a difference between a promise, an inheritance, a free gift, and the law, the results of obedience. And so now he says, then what's the point of the law? Verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed, that is Jesus, should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now we'll come back and discuss this whole transgression part, but he's saying the law came along because of sin. And he said, until the seed would come, there was a purpose for the law. It was appointed through angels by the hands of a mediator. Angels had something to do with the giving of the law in the Old Testament. We don't have a lot of details about that, but Acts chapter 7 refers to it. It's referred to here. There are some places in the Psalms that seem to allude to it. He also references a mediator, someone who stands between two parties. The mediator in this case is either a reference to Moses, who we know that there's one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. And so Ultimately, Jesus is seen here as our mediator. Some people see this referencing Moses as an inferior mediator to Jesus being our mediator because Moses went and got the law from God and and gave it to the people. I tend to think that he's making a connection here and that when Moses went up into the mountain to receive the law, I believe he probably received it from Jesus Christ himself. But whether it's Moses or whether it's Jesus, the point is it was mediated and and yet it says there's one God. See, he had made a promise that was unilateral, that was unconditional, that was eternal. And so nobody can come along then and mediate and somehow compromise that. And yet the law was given from God through mediation 
Angels cooperating with it somehow, and the people received the law, and it was because of sin. But let's read on. A mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? No way, certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. He's saying, no, the the law wasn't the fulfillment of the promise. God made an unconditional promise. And so giving a bunch of rules, passing out the law, it's an impossible way to receive the promise. It's not the same thing. If you could get saved by the law, great, but you can't. But the Scripture has confined all under sin. That is, the Scripture shows us that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God in order that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. What does this mean? What's the law for? Okay, follow this progression. God wanted to bless His people. And the only way He was going to bless His people is if He did it. He couldn't expect anything of them. You remember back in the Garden of Eden, God placed them in a perfect environment. They were in fellowship with God beautifully, walking in the cool of the day, knowing Him, having everything they could possibly need. And so there was just one rule. There's that one tree, all the other trees you can eat of, but one tree you can't eat of. And God put one rule on them, and they failed. But he still promised, after the fall there in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord told uh, Eve, said, from your seed, now a woman doesn't have a seed, Uh, the seed comes from the man, the woman contributes the egg, but he's saying, ironically, from your seed, there's going to be one who's going to come that will crush the head of the enemy. Satan will bruise his heel, but he will crush Satan's head. Now, why does it talk about the woman having a seed? Because Jesus Christ was born of the woman. Was his, his relation was God. He was God himself, and yet he was given to the woman. So the only time a woman could provide one that could be described legitimately as a seed. And at that point, prophesying concerning Jesus, prophesying concerning the day when they would drive a nail through his feet, And not break his bones, but bruise his heel. And yet on that day when that happened, the head of Satan was crushed. He was defeated completely. And so there in the Garden of Eden is the promise. I'm going to fix what you messed up. I am going to do something for you that you could never do for yourself. And it's a beautiful promise. And that promise gets carried out throughout the Scriptures. And finally, as God comes to Ur the Chaldees there to Abram and introduces him in in Genesis chapter 9 and says, I'm going to make your descendants like the sands of the sea. I am going to bless all the nations of the world through you. Again, not just saying I'm going to give you a bunch of kids, but that promise from Genesis chapter 3 is a promise that I am giving you now in Genesis chapter 9 and saying, I have a plan. I know what I'm doing, and it will defeat what's wrong in this world. God continued to hold that promise. But then, did the children of Israel understand faith? No, not hardly. I mean, from from the time that, that God began to work with them, they were constantly falling away. And so the problem is, they weren't crying out for God to help them by faith. Faith is just believing that God will do it. It's basically saying, I can't do it, so God, you can. They didn't get it. And so after spending over 400 years in captivity, you'd think they would have got it. But they didn't. As soon as they came out miraculously from Egypt, as they crossed the Red Sea, they got out into the wilderness. Even before they crossed the Red Sea, they were already griping and complaining resisting what God was doing. And so there they are. They're out in the wilderness, and, and they were wanting to go back to Egypt. They were feeling like God had deserted them. Faith, what requires faith is when you're in a wilderness, when you can't see all of the answers, everything laid out, and 
They didn't have that faith that God had so desperately desired them to relate with him by faith. And so, as a result, he gave the law. The purpose of the law, as it says here, it was added because of transgressions till the promise could be fulfilled. The law was given to teach the people that they can't save themselves, that they can't do what's necessary in order to fix what's wrong in this world. And so God laid all these commandments out. They were good commandments. It was a great standard. There was nothing wrong with it. But there's only one who could fulfill the law. There's only one who could be righteous before the law because as we saw last week, there's a curse within the law that says if you violate even one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. You're done. Game over. And so we were waiting for the seed to come, for Jesus Christ to come and fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And in the meantime, we needed an object lesson that said, you're not the seed. You aren't the one who can do what needs to be done. You can't fix it yourself. And so God gave the law, and the reaction of the children of Israel should have been, how in the world can we keep this thing? But instead, what they said of one accord, it says, they all yelled, all that the Lord has said we will do. And God said, okay, great, let me see you do it. Let me see how this works. We, last night, Ann and I were walking down at the beach and saw a friend of ours who goes out witnessing there a lot, and, and he came up, and I let him witness to Ann, and I just kind of stood back and watched it. But he has a penny, and he smashes it and has the Ten Commandments in it. And he gives them out to people. Hey, you want this? You know what it is? No, it's a penny, but it's smashed, and Ten Commandments are on there. And they look at it, and he goes, you ever read the Ten Commandments? And they, well, yeah. And he goes, you ever try to keep them? And you go, uh, he goes, you can't, can you? And then he uses that to go into a gospel presentation. Anne finally told him she was already saved. But <laughs> that's exactly what the law is supposed to do, to help you to realize you can't be righteous on your own, that no law, no construction of rules and procedures will ever save you. It's to help you to be desperate and go, God, can you do this? And to cry out in faith to God who can fulfill that requirement, the God who sent his son to die for us, to take our sins upon himself. But if it wasn't for sin, you wouldn't need a law. But without the law, I don't think you'd realize what sin is. Also last night down on the pier, there was a guy who was painting a fluorescent picture. picture. He had a little fluorescent or black light on it and and we were watching for a while and people were crowding around as he drew this whole thing and I had a feeling he was going to share the gospel and I wanted to see how he did it and so we plus he was giving away free hot chocolate so all these people are standing around watching and he's drawing this picture and he draws this beautiful portrait of two paths that you can go on and and he says, one of them is, I'm okay, you're okay. And the other one is, I'm not okay. And he said, there's another word for I'm not okay. And he wrote the three letters, S-I-N. And when he wrote sin on the path, everyone left. It was there were a few shills left over that were working with him. But basically, it's like, sin, I'm out of here. But we can run from it. But the law reminds us that we're in sin that we can't fix what's wrong with us, that we violate. And so he says, you know, the Scripture can find us all under sin. The Scripture tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so the law was given because God didn't want you to have to spend the rest of your life trying to save yourself trying to live up to some righteous standard. And if you try to be a religious person and earn your way to God, you will end in failure every time. And so the law was just a shortcut object lesson to say you need help. Now, for many of us, the law, the Jewish law, doesn't mean anything. We don't feel bound by that. We weren't raised with that kind of a heritage. So as a result, God brings up other object lessons for us, and we don't understand it, but everything that happens in our lives before we come to Christ is either a part of the promise or a part of the law. As you're heading off into life, there are some great blessings. We have great hope for the future. 
We're pumped and excited about what can happen. We're hearing the promise. God saying, I want to bless you. And that comes through loud and clear as you look at the good things that God does for us. We realize, this is good. It's good that God's doing this for me. But something else comes along too. Because when you try to get things organized and do what you want to do, when you try to come up with a, a rule for life, you realize that that rule of yours falls short. That the promise will never be fulfilled by you and what you can do. Oh, there's a great calling on your life and you may have wonderful ideas, but your own ideals will always, always fall short. Will never compensate for the fact that you have within you this disability, this inability to do what even you want to do. Forget the law. You can't even follow your own rules. You, no matter how simple your rules are. There are people who say philosophically that, you know, the most important thing is I believe there are no absolutes. I think everyone's right. I think everyone can be. It's just there are no absolutes. And you say to that person, are you sure about that? Are you absolutely sure that there are no absolutes? Uh, because I disagree with you. Are you going to accept me? No, because we can't accept people who believe absolutes, and I'm absolutely certain of that. And it becomes contradictory even in your own mind. One of my favorite, favorite music videos that I ever saw, and it's probably floating around out there somewhere, but back in the 60s, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, those great hippie singers, were doing a concert in a, some mansion up by Big Sur somewhere. They were doing this concert outside, and, and things were going well, and everything was about, oh, the flowers and peace and love and granola and all that, when all of a sudden, someone in the crowd started heckling Stephen Stills. And it got him mad, and Stephen Stills had this big fur coat on, and he was just the epitome of love until he went after the guy in the crowd. <laughs> And he goes and he's swinging and pounding the guy and everyone's pulling them apart. The other guys in the band are jumping in and breaking it up. And finally they get the guy out of there and Stephen Stills comes back to the microphone and all disheveled, his, his fur coat all messed up and everything. And he goes, thank you brothers for loving me through that. <laughs> but that's what happens. You go, my rule is love until you cross me. And then I'm going to punch you out. No matter what your rule is, it's not enough. Rules are good. They say that rules are meant to be broken. It's not really that. It's not that rules are meant to be broken. But I think rules serve as a good example that you can't not break them. You can't follow the rules. Why is that so important? Because the most elementary step that you need to understand before you can have faith in God and allow Him to do the work that He wants to do is for you to realize that you're not the solution. Sometimes you see people trying to do things and they really don't know what they're doing. And so, until you, know, you say, hey, you want some help? No, I think I got it. You wait a while. And when they finally get frustrated, now you can help them. I used to be pretty good at opening car doors that were locked. We won't talk about why. But <laughs> I've often, I've stopped and seen someone with a coat hanger or a Slim Jim, and they're frustrated, and they're trying, and I say, need any help? And especially if, if it's a woman, they go, yeah, please, open the door. But if it's a man, they'll usually go, no, no, I think I got it, I think I got it. And they're just crunching and their hands are starting to bleed and you know I'll just wait and I'll go you know there have been times when I've said oh great you, you know what you're doing I'll watch because I can always pick up some tips from people who really know what they're doing and usually it takes about 15 or 20 minutes until they go okay fine you want to try <laughs> then you can open their door for them God's kind of the same way he goes as long as you're poking and digging and prodding and trying I'll let you do it but when you realize that you can go, okay, I'm lost. Okay, I can't help myself. All right, I really don't know how to get out of this predicament. Then that's the first step toward relying on Him and putting your faith in Him and saying, okay, I'll let you save me. I'll let you run the show. I will let you be God. I'm tired of being God. I'm worn out. It's like all of those times when back when we were younger, people don't do it as much today, but you'd work on your own car. 
until it got to be such a mess, and then you're trying to figure out, how am I going to get it to the garage for them to fix this thing? God lets us do that with our lives, and the law is perfect in that it is a perfect picture of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. He is the only one who was able to fulfill the law, but it does what we need to do. That is, it tells us, sorry, you don't measure up. You can't save yourself. You can't fix what was wrong. Sometimes it doesn't have the effect that it's supposed to. And I think of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, okay, what do I need to do to have everything out of life that life wants me to have? How can I get eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know what the Bible says, obey the law. And that should have caused him to go, well, what do I do when I can't obey the law? But instead, this kid in his arrogance said, what law are you talking about? You name it. I've done it. And Jesus said, you know, Ten Commandments. He starts listing them. The guy says, I've kept all of those from my youth. That's pretty good. So Jesus said, okay, tell you what then. Why don't you just go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me? Now, don't get the idea that this was a formula for how to get saved. Sell everything that you have. And I've heard people who advocate that. But Jesus knew what was holding that guy back from trusting him. And for this man, obeying the law was something that he believed that he was doing it. And most people today who are legalistic also think they're righteous until they come to a point when they fail miserably and realize, oh no, I broke the rules. But for this rich young ruler, a simple commandment like just go sell everything you have and come and follow me. And Jesus wasn't being mean to him. It says there in Mark chapter 10, it said when Jesus looked at him, he loved him when he said this. But he realized that what this kid needed to learn was that he couldn't save himself, that he couldn't be good enough. And until that happened, there's nothing he could do that would help him. And so sadly, this rich young ruler walked away with his head hanging down, very sad because it says he had much. Whatever it is that holds us back from completely trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation and for our daily lives, whatever holds us back, that's the law for us. And God has ways of disabling us so that we realize that we need help. Everything that's within the law and everything that's within the promises of God and everything that happens in our lives that fails, is all there for a reason, to get us to say help, to get us to cry uncle, to get us to tap out. That's what God is trying to do, and that's the purpose of the law. But, verse 25, after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. When the law, it says, is a tutor to bring us to Christ. When you're going to school, a lot of times you do things that don't make a lot of sense to you at the time. You have to learn certain basic principles in order later to get the big picture and put it all together. And so they have you in math. Before you're solving complicated equations, it helps if you memorize your, your uh, multiplication tables, for instance. And, you know, most of you remember 7 times 7 is 49. A lot of you, when you get up to 7 times 8 and 7 times 9, you're not so sure because you get bored with those things after a while. Everyone knows 2 times 2 and 2 times 3. But what happens is it becomes weary because we don't see that there's an application for it in life. And so sometimes we just decide school is a waste of time and people drop out of school. It's a sad thing because there are a lot of things that we need to learn. And some of the things we need to learn include learning that we need help. If you study anything long enough, you'll come to a point where you just go, you know, this isn't enough. This isn't everything. I remember when I used to teach martial arts, I would start with the basics, how to stand. And we would work a long time on just our stances and then teach like one basic punch or one basic kick or one basic technique. And often... As soon as the student had had a few lessons, they thought they were ready to go out and beat someone up. And so they'd go get mouthy and start a fight and come back the next week all beat up. <laughs> Say, this stuff doesn't work. It's like, why? Because, well, you only learned it with a guy coming through with a right-hand punch. But people out there in the street don't cooperate. 
They don't say, okay, are you ready? Here it comes. See this one? It's coming right in here, right when I step there. And you can block it and parry it off to the side, and you can hit me in the ribs. They just come at you, and you realize, oh, man, I'm still a student. I'm not ready to graduate yet. There's still a lot that I need to learn. And as I learn the pieces, I'm able to put them together and ultimately turn them into something that's sensible. And that's what the law did. Every time you turned around, it seemed like it was something else. Until finally you get it, I can't do this. I can't accomplish what I need to accomplish. I'm running up against a wall. It's a tutor. But on the other hand, if it does its job and you graduate and you learn your lessons well and a part of those lessons are the lessons of knowing what you can't do and what you're not able to achieve, then you get to graduate. And when you understand that you can't do it, then you've learned what the law wanted to teach you and now you can move into a relationship of grace. Now you can move into living by faith. It was the way it was always intended for you to live. It's the only way ultimately that you can get to God. The law will never save you. Rules will never make you good enough. They will only frustrate you. But the exhortation from Paul is to graduate, to get past that struggling with whether or not you can do it and to enter into a relationship whereby you realize, you mean, I just let him do it? I just trust in him. Yep. That's what Abraham did. That what was, that's what was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. It was, it was him being willing to do what he couldn't do, to believe what God was telling him when it made no sense, even to the point where he went and was ready to offer his son Isaac, the child of promise, as a sacrifice. He was that trusting of God And of course, the Lord stepped in and said, I'm going to provide myself as a sacrifice. You're starting to get it, Abraham. I'm amazed that you would go as far as you did, walk as far as you did with your son, ready to do a sacrifice. But I have a secret. The promise that I made for you, the promise that everyone in the world would be blessed from your seed, it's coming, and I am the one who will pay the price. I am the one who will do what is necessary. And so all of this, as Paul makes it so clear, the promise, the promise from the beginning, the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, that promise to bless us all, it was all about Jesus. He was the culmination of the promise. He was the seed singular, the one who would do what needed to be done. And the law? The law was Jesus too. It was a picture of him and his righteousness, his holiness. It was a requirement that he himself would fulfill personally for us. And if you see the law without seeing Jesus, you miss the point. But to see Jesus in his glory is to, if you open your eyes, is to realize, I am not Jesus. I am not righteous. And anyone who can stand there and look in the eye and tell you that they are righteous, that they are holy, that they don't sin anymore. Oh, I meet people who say that all the time. And a lot more people who say it without stating it. They would never think of stating it. They just carry themselves in such a way and they judge others so radically that you just know they don't think they sin anymore. But see... If the law is understood and comprehended, if we see Jesus for who he is, we go, "Uh uh-oh, I can't do it. And that's not bad. It's good. If you can't do it, it's good to know now. Don't just continue to try. Well, I'll just keep trying, and eventually I'll probably find out I can't do it. Hey, just wake up and recognize you can't do it. You know, you can start running a marathon, But if you know there's no way you can run 26 miles, you know what? There's really not a point in running the first five. Oh, I'm just dying. I'm so sore, but I think I can do this. No, come on. If you're dying after five miles, you're just not a marathon runner. Get in the car. (laughs) Just go. You know, what are you going to do? Walk 26 miles so you can get a T-shirt? 
It makes you look like a runner, and then if anybody ever wants to race you, you know, you're, you lose. Just accept it. Get yourself to the point where you realize your limitations. That's what the law does for us. And when we realize our limitations, you know who's standing at the end of that path? The fulfillment of the promise. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is there to say, I'm glad you realize that you can't do it because I'm here to tell you that I've already done it. I took your sin on me. I, I took and paid the price for what you couldn't do. I did it, and I'm offering it to you. Offering it? What do I have to do? Nothing. It's not a contract. Yeah, it's a unilateral contract. I promise you, you take it. You accept that gift. This is what happened historically. This is what Paul is explaining to the Galatians. But you know, every one of us, if we map our life out, we'll see a very similar pattern develop. Because life begins with great promise. You're born. It's the cutest you'll ever be. <laughs> and people will be more optimistic about you than ever. You get to school the law is like a school teacher. You get to school and all of a sudden somebody's grading you down. And you find out there are other people better than you and even they make mistakes. And in different ways over a period of years, you discover, oh man, I'm a loser. I, they, my parents believed I was cute, but other people don't think so. I say things that my grandparents laugh at and they think it's great. I say it in school, and I'm on my way down to the office. What's with life? I don't understand this. And for some of us, it takes longer than others, but the law kicks in and just about shatters that promise and just disillusions us to what we thought at one point could be. Now, this happens in cycles in different ways in our lives. Sometimes there's this great promise when someone starts a new business. Oh, it's going to be great. I have people talking to me a lot of times when they start businesses and they're all pumped and usually they have great ideas of what God's going to do through it and everything. And there are times when I've seen God fulfill that. But most of the times, let's face it, most small businesses fail in the first year. You start with promise, but the law sets in. Oh, you mean you have to pay taxes on this money? You mean I have to get workers' compensation? I can't just hire people from Home Depot and run my business that way? And, you know, oh, we're drained. The law, boom. And we're disillusioned and discouraged. And we thought we could do it with our great ideas and our ingenuity. We end up finding out that we're failing. You know what? It's a great lesson to learn. It's good when you get to the point where you realize you can't do it. For whatever reason, however that happens, whatever law stands in your way, disillusionment is the dark pathway that leads to the solution to every problem you've ever had. Because Jesus Christ stands there. He is in it all. He can do what you can't do. He has done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And walking by faith, saying, I give up, and God, I'm just going to follow you, all I want is you. You're my promise fulfilled. You're my law satisfied. I just want you. And entering into that awareness makes the disappointment and the disillusionment so worth it. The only alternative is just keep coming up with more dreams. Keep finding other promises. Keep looking for other ways that I think I can still make this work. You meet people, I know several of them, it's, it's interesting when you meet someone who's like bounced from religion to religion, trying them all, hoping that somehow in this religion or in that faith, I can find some rules, I can find a way of life that's going to satisfy this hunger, this emptiness that's within me. And I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I would say, hey, if you don't really know the truth and you know, you're figuring out life, go try a few religions. Find out how empty they are. Find out how little they will ultimately satisfy. If that's what it takes for you to think you have no place else to go but the foot of the cross, do what you need to do. Because Jesus will always be there waiting for you. You can keep coming up with new dreams and new ideas and new scams. 
You can live your life hoping that tonight in the middle of the night there'll be an infomercial that really will be the secret to success. And you can go ahead and send in your money. You can go ahead and try all you want. But ultimately, you know where that leads. The same place the last great idea led to realizing that I can't do this. And that is a great place to go because the next step from there is to give up and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. There are some of you probably here today that are somewhere on this path and maybe you got here today because you are kind of frustrated. Maybe you got here just because somebody kind of twisted your arm and dragged you in the door. Whatever reason, you're here. And you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ. There are probably still a few things that you can try before you're done, but I can save you a lot of time. The truth is, you can't do it. You are a sinner. You have fallen short of the perfect requirement of a perfect God. And yet there's one who died for you who is perfect, who could have done anything that you did. He allowed you to fail deliberately. Because he has something better for you. He wants to live his life through you. And by putting your faith in Jesus Christ today, you can discover what's at the end of the road. That promise that you had a long time ago, you'll find out, hey, God wants to fulfill it in a beautiful way. Once you realize you can't do it, he will. And that's what it means to become a Christian. But for the rest of us, we've given our lives to Jesus Christ. As we back up in the chapter, remember, Paul said, the way you came to the Lord by faith, the way you received the Holy Spirit by faith, that's the same way you are supposed to live. And what that tells me and what that tells you is you don't get saved by grace through faith and then decide to live by rules or law. The law is there for a very good reason. But the truth is, on a daily basis, you and I need to remember the principles of the law. They're good rules for conduct. It helps set a standard. But I don't think we should spend a day of our lives not reminding ourselves that we failed. That's why we came to Jesus. If you came to Jesus to do him a favor, if you took a look around the church and said, man, God will never get anything done with these people. He needs someone expert like me. Don't do him a favor. You've just done yourself a horrible disservice. But if, like the rest of us, you came to him out of desperation because you knew what you were doing wasn't working, you knew that you didn't have the answers, that you couldn't save yourself, then I just want to remind you, and God wants to remind you, that's still how it works. Every day, remember, it's not you. It's not what you do. That's a great burden lifted off my chest that I don't have to keep myself saved that I don't have to do things in order to stay right with God and somehow get to heaven, that instead I can just say, I'll let God do it. He's going to take care of it. He has promised that. I can't save myself. I did a funeral for a friend of mine's father um, on Friday, and I had shared the Lord with him a lot of times, but he's a stubborn guy and didn't have a lot to say. And, you know, you, you just pray for God's mercy and grace to be there on the service and everything. And he was a good guy. And afterwards, his wife was talking to me and said, you know, I think he's going to be all right because he was a good man. And I said, I'm sure he was a good man, but he's not good enough. And none of us are. The only way that we can know where we go when we die is to put our faith in the only good man who was ever there. During the service, they sang an old song that I love that's called Softer, Softly and Tenderly. And, it, and it, was, it was most of the people there, many of them weren't Christians. And, and it sounds good, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. And, and the chorus goes, come home, come home. And I, I could see the people just going, oh yeah, come home, come home. And it says, come home, come home, you who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. And it was like, sinner? And I could see people looking at each other like, what is this? So when I got up to share, I said, I love that song. Because whether you like it or not, most of you know he was a sinner. But I am too. And I said, the glorious truth to me is that there is a God who loves me so much that he says, sinner, 
I've got a home for you. I have a place prepared for you. I want to receive you to myself. And then I shared how you can know that you're a child of God and how you can become a Christian. But our sin, when we see it, it can either make us mad and cause us to turn away or we can realize this is the great principle by which I live. We raise our kids to try to tell them, you can, and we tell them little stories about the train that says, I think I can, I think I can, and yet, in reality, the greatest lesson that you need to learn is, I can't, I can't. And when the law teaches you that you can't, then the law also teaches you that he can. Those two great verses that you have to put together, Jesus saying, in John 14, without John 17, without me, you can do nothing. And then Paul saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Those are the steps that we're talking about. And if the promises of God are going to be fulfilled in your life, take a look at what you can't do, and then you'll realize if you trust Him, you can do anything with His power and His strength walking with him by faith. That's how Abraham lived, and that's how we are to live too. And if you start finding yourself getting too religious, if you just, and the way you can tell is you're just looking down at everyone else. You're so disgusted by what's going on in this world. You're so disgusted by other people who don't do what you think they ought to do. Better take a look again in the perfect law of God, in the word that when you look at it, you go, ooh, I'm not so good either. And that is the step to faith. That's the realization, the reminder, once again, it's not a religion. It's a relationship that's a result of a unilateral promise, unconditional, that was made to all the children of faith, those who would simply believe. Let's pray. Lord, it's a good thing that you did it because we can't. You're perfect, and we're definitely not. Lord, we struggle with, should we just try to be good enough? We realize there's no point in us pretending like we're marathon runners. We're not going to finish this thing. But you went ahead of us and did it for us, and we're grateful. God, if there are people here today who are struggling with the law, That when they hear the truth of Scripture, it convicts them and makes them feel bad and they just want to leave. Or others who, when they hear it, they feel really good because they think they're better than most people. But if any of us are living our life in any way other than by pure faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, remind us. You have our permission. Whatever you need to do to remind us of our own inability Bring us to that point of desperation if necessary so that we can put our faith and trust in you. Lord, help us to live this way, not just to get saved this way, but to live this way one day at a time. Please help. God, if there are people here today who don't know you and they need you and they're realizing that they need something, Lord, help them to find you at the end of the path. Help them to put the condemnation of failure behind them and move forward with the one who will save them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.